Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. If you were living in the United States at the end of the 19th century, it was a tough time. The country was trying to rebound from an economic depression known as the Panic of 1893. Now, one of the tools used to spur a little economic growth back in the day was to host a World's Fair. A man named Michael H. DeYoung, who was the publisher of the San Francisco Chronicle, worked on a World's Fair in Chicago that took place in 1893. It was, by all accounts, a huge success, drawing millions of visitors and their dollars. DeYoung was inspired. So he thought, hey, what if we held a fair in San Francisco? He really wanted to point out that San Francisco was as good as every other city on the East Coast. This is Nicole Meldahl, executive director for the Western Neighborhoods Project, a nonprofit focused on the history of the west side of San Francisco. She says DeYoung had some business interests in mind, too. And he also owned a bunch of land in the Sunset District, which was totally undeveloped at the time. So he thought, why don't we put a midwinter exposition in Golden Gate Park? It'll show how good the weather is here in California. And also, it would be bringing tons of people out here. You would have to build transportation, all kinds of things that would improve the area nearby property he was hoping to sell. And so, with the blessing from Congress and local leaders, the California Midwinter International Exposition of 1894 came to be. In eight months, organizers transformed a portion of the quiet, tree-studded Golden Gate Park into a boisterous fair. Most of the attractions surrounded the Grand Court, which you can still see today. It's that plaza that's between the de Young Museum and the California Academy of Sciences. In the middle of it was what they called the Electric Tower, basically a miniature Eiffel Tower where visitors could get a view over the fair. There was a mining camp where guests could pretend to be gold miners. There was a hundred-foot-tall Firth wheel. Which is a Ferris wheel, but it was Ferris wheels like copyrighted, so some guy named Firth built this one. And then there were a bunch of cultural exhibitions from faraway places like Egypt, Hungary, China, and Japan. On one hand, these attractions were supposed to showcase art, food, and culture from other countries, places San Franciscans were unlikely to visit during this time. But it was often done in a way that was problematic. It was, you know, advertised to white people as like a visit into authentic um, countries and cultures, and it was just kind of like a sketch, really, of them. That's Sango Tajima, a performer and writer who's been researching the history of the Japanese tea garden for an upcoming performance there. There's a joke in the show about how this is the World's Fair is basically a fair for white people to <laughs> explore exotic countries. 
Fairgoers were invited to take in the lifestyles of Native Americans in the Eskimo village, where Inuit people were made to live in plaster igloos. There was Indian village with wooden lean-tos and straw huts, and there was African village where you can meet members of the Homi tribe who were actually just actors hired from Oakland. And then there was the Japanese village. Organizers had plans for fairgoers to ride around in a fleet of rickshaws pulled by Japanese people. This plan did not sit well with the Japanese Americans in San Francisco. They wrote a letter to the fair committee saying, The custom of requiring the gin rickshaw to be drawn by men instead of animals is degrading. We consequently, respectfully, and earnestly protest against its use in this manner in the park or upon public streets during the fair. Organizers responded by having white men pull the rickshaws instead. White men who wore yellow face and were dressed in Japanese garb. There were some aspects of these exhibitions that are more palatable today. The Japanese village also had a theater where Japanese dancers and acrobats performed, a studio with an artist creating live paintings, and, of course, a house where tea was served. It was just kind of a taste of Japan and what it would be like to ride a Jinrikisha passenger cart and visit a tea garden and um, enjoy some Japanese treats and stuff like that. Of the hundreds of exhibits at the fair, the Japanese village was a crowd favorite. It was so beloved that while the rest of the fair was disassembled in July of 1894, it remained and flourished. So Makoto Hagiwara was a landscape architect. He was an early immigrant from Japan. And in 1894, he was hired on to kind of build this out to become the Japanese tea garden as we know it now. Hagiwara nurtured its grounds, tripling the size of the garden. He imported plants, birds, and fish from Japan, reportedly at his own expense. He hired a bunch of Japanese craftsmen to to build the garden, kind of made it a little more authentic to what a Japanese garden in Japan might look like. He lived on the grounds for decades and made the garden his life's work. When you visit the Japanese tea garden today, you're walking through Hagiwara's legacy. When we come back, we'll learn about another gift Hagiwara gave to America. One that you might be surprised to learn comes at the end of Chinese Meals. I'm Olivia Allen Price. This is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. Fortune cookies appear at the end of almost any meal you might have at a Chinese restaurant. But where did they come from? 
Susie Racho brings us the story behind this iconic dish, whose lineage runs right through Golden Gate Park. It's a chilly morning at San Francisco's Japanese Tea Garden in Golden Gate Park. I'm here with Stephen Pitzenbarger, one of the gardeners. He's a bit of a tea garden historian. We are really a gem that's for San Francisco as much as it's for the tourists. He's taking me to the gift shop, where bolted to the top of a display case, I see two small iron molds, black with long, thin handles. They're called kata and are used to make Japanese crackers called senbei. A small sign says that these presses date back to 1914. As you can see, a very simple device, just pressing it flat. A device, Stephen says, a caretaker at the garden adapted to make fortune cookies more than a century ago. His name was Makoto Hagiwara, and he may have served the first fortune cookies in California right here. Each cookie was imprinted with his initials, M.H. The story that I understand is he took a Japanese cookie, uh, senbei, and he got the idea to put a little note in it. You can probably trace the history of fortune cookies back to L.A. and San Francisco. But, you know, fortune cookies as a concept go way back to Japan. That's Jennifer Eight Lee. She wrote the Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Adventures in the World of Chinese Food. But her research took her to Japan. Around the shrine in downtown Kyoto, there is actually a bunch of families that still make quote-unquote fortune cookies in the Japanese tradition. Lee writes about a woodblock print from 1878 of a man grilling what the Japanese call fortune crackers. They look like American fortune cookies on steroids. They're actually bigger and browner. They're made with like miso paste and sesame, so have a much nuttier flavor than the American versions would tend to be yellow and like buttery and vanilla, reflecting American palate. The ones in Japan also have fortunes, but not baked inside. Instead, they're pinched in the fold. Lee says Japanese bakers still make these fortune crackers one by one, much like Makoto Hagiwara did in the 1900s in Golden Gate Park. But making them one by one was time-consuming. And as their popularity grew, the Hagiwaras found they couldn't keep up with demand. They outsourced production to a local confectionery shop called Benkyoto. My name is Gary T. Ono. My grandfather was the founder of Benkyoto. His name was Sueichi Okamura. Gary says his grandfather worked with Hagiwara to adapt a fortune cookie recipe to the American sweet tooth. They came up with a vanilla extract flavor that we know today. I visit Gary's apartment in L.A.'s Little Tokyo. On the living room ceiling is a giant foam fortune cookie with the message Made in Japan sticking out of it. He drags out a heavy suitcase where wrapped in newspaper are several kata. Oh, those were my duffel bags. They're heavier than I imagined and sport the familiar initials M.H. The Japanese tea gardens Makoto Hagiwara. All right. You can see where a, a cookie dough would go. Then you squeeze it. And you can lock it. Then you put it over the charcoal or the flame and, the, and you flip it. Eventually, Gary says, Benkyoto helped develop a machine to mass produce the cookies. 
But how did this American adaptation of a Japanese cracker become so associated with Chinese restaurants? Author Jennifer Aitley says there were a couple of factors. When the Japanese first came to the United States, a lot of them actually ran Chinese restaurants because back in the 1910s, 1920s, Americans were not eating sushi, right? Sushi, raw fish, like no-go. So instead, you had Japanese opening Chinese restaurants because that was familiar with like chop suey and chow mein and egg foo young. And in this mix of Japanese families opening uh, Chinese restaurants, they began serving fortune cookies as a form of dessert. So Japanese bakeries in California, like Ben Kyoto, manufactured fortune cookies for decades until 1942, when citizens of Japanese ancestry were forced into internment camps. Now they were taken to racetracks and fairgrounds where the army almost overnight had built assembly centers. Among those were Japanese-American bakers who made fortune cookies. And at the same time, you had a huge rise in popularity of Chinese restaurants during World War II. And as part of that, the Chinese started serving fortune cookies and, in fact, started manufacturing them in mass. So I like to say that fortune cookies, the Japanese invented them, the Chinese popularized them, but the Americans ultimately consumed them. Hi, how are you? Hi. Um, sencha for two. One sencha? Uh-huh. And two and, cups? Yeah, two sure. cups and the um, tea cookies. I'm back at the Japanese tea garden in San Francisco, drinking tea and reading fortunes with my husband, John. Mm. Oh, here we go. The stock market may be your ticket to success. <laughs> we'll see about that. We've got a personal connection to fortune cookies, too. We gave them out as wedding favors. And like the ones now served at the Japanese tea garden, they came from Chinatown. That was Bay Curious producer Susie Racho. If you'd like to learn more about the Japanese tea garden, join us on June 11th and 12th. Sango Tajima, who you heard from toward the beginning of this episode, will be guiding Bay Curious listeners on a theatrical walking tour, complete with live music. Even if you've been to the garden before, come see it with us in a whole new light. Buy tickets at kqed.org live. If you want to see how fortune cookies are still folded by hand in San Francisco, we made a video for you. We'll put a link in our show notes, or you can find the video at baycurious.org. This story was produced in collaboration with the California Report magazine. Thanks to Sasha Coca, Victoria Malion, and Seal Muller for their help. Bay Curious is made by Katrina Schwartz, Brendan Willard, Sebastian Mignobuccelli, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Big thanks to Kiana Mogadam, Jessica Placek, and Amanda Font for their support on this series. We hope you have a great week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. 
Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.